Hello and welcome to the Magpie Talk Show, a podcast about technology. I'm your host, Sam Newman. In this week's episode, I'll be talking to Anita Sengupta. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Magpie Talk Show. This week we have a bit of a different show than normal. Uh, Rather than just talking to sort of software development techies, I'm talking to an altogether different type of techie. Uh, as this week we have the first of two um, special interviews with real-life NASA scientists. Uh, this week I'm talking to Anita Sengupta, who um, works on the parachute system for the recent Mars Science Laboratory Curiosity Lander, amongst other things. Uh, she shared her experiences via a keynote at last year's Liao conference, and I was lucky enough to grab her just before she dashed off on holiday, I think it was, uh, to share some of her thoughts, her journey, and how she became a NASA scientist and what was involved with the parachute as well. I I hope you enjoy the episode and um, stay tuned as well because next week we'll be hearing from her colleague Kamal Ujahiri. Uh, So last day of Yao in Sydney, it's been a three city affair and I'm actually here with um, uh, uh, Anita who was doing a keynote this morning and hopefully I'm going to interview her colleague as well, uh, Kamal shortly as well. Anita, maybe could you introduce yourself because you're not the average person I have on this podcast, which tends to be software developers. You have a bit of a different background, don't you? I do. Uh, So let's see, my background is um, aerospace engineering. So I got my bachelor's, my master's, and my PhD in aerospace engineering. I'd say my master's was focused on aerodynamics, um, and my PhD was focused on plasma physics for electric propulsion applications. So I've pretty much been a propulsion technologist for you know over a decade. I think it's quite, it seems to be the people that are in you know your field call it things like propulsion sciences, and we call it rocket science, <laughs> right? Or sometimes rocket <laughs> surgery. Um, but this would qualify under the under the large amount of specialist disciplines involved in getting spacecraft out of our orbit and into other planets' orbits. You would class as being a rocket scientist, I'd guess, based on most people's definition. Yeah, so I, it, propulsion basically is rocket science. So there are many different disciplines within aerospace engineering, but specifically propulsion is rocket science. <laughs> but uh, so you did your bachelor's, you did a PhD, you did a master's thesis. What started that whole thing? I mean, what, what, what was thinking? I mean, I mean, what makes, so, you know, obviously I grew up wanting to be a footballer, then realized I couldn't do that sort of thing. But, you know, what, what was it that made you think, one day I'm going to, like, help land things on Mars? So this, I, I, a lot of people have asked me this question, so, and I have kind of a funny answer, which you'll like since you're British, and I'm actually British too, but, um, and that is, I was a huge science fiction fan. So when I was a little kid, I would watch Star Trek original series reruns with my dad, uh, and I just thought it was, you know, awesome. I loved the fact there were aliens and exploring other worlds, but my very favorite show was Doctor Who, and so I watched the reruns of, like, the 1970s, 1980s Doctor Who on public television, and I was just kind of enthralled with the idea of a space-traveling, time-traveling alien who got to visit all of these strange new worlds and make a difference, and I knew that wasn't real, and I knew it never would be real, but I so uh, respected uh, the characters ability to understand everything. I mean, he was he's like the most educated person you'll ever meet. And so for me, I always wanted to understand everything so that I could kind of be an expert on as many things as possible. And I specifically liked space exploration, which is why I picked aerospace engineering 
relative to something else. You are now crushing the dreams of many people saying it never will be real. There are probably many of my listeners <laughs> are Doctor Who fans. I mean, I'm like, I grew up, I grew up as a kid watching Doctor Who as well. It never inspired me to be to do anything other than hide behind the sofa though, when the Daleks or something came on. Um, so that, so that, that was enough. That was, and you thought, okay, I can. There's, there's something about this sphere. There's something about being on other planets or, or being part of that that's going to drive you forward. I think what it really is, though, is, is the uh, enjoyment of, of the unknown. And so there's this um, museum in Seattle, the Science Fiction Museum, and there's some quote there, which is that science fiction inspires a sense of wonder in people, and it absolutely inspires a sense of wonder in me. So I don't want to watch crime shows or drama shows. I want to watch something which is different from my reality, in some cases sort of a utopian society, um, and where you'll just ex uh, explore new worlds and experience new things. And so that's kind of what we do with space exploration, even now. You know, for you know what I'm doing with NASA, we are exploring new worlds and finding out new things. You do work at NASA. You work at JPL. I, believe, I do. NASA, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you've been talking today about your involvement with the recent uh, Mars rover landing. Do you want to talk about sort of what your role was in that whole project? Well, sure. So the funny thing is, I have a background in uh, plasma propulsion systems, and so I actually worked on the engine technology for uh, that's used in the Dawn mission. And that was my PhD thesis. And then I was kind of you know that was tailing down, and someone came and asked me, "Do you want to work on the next Mars?" mission. I'm like, sure. <laughs> like, do you want to do the parachute for the next Mars mission? I'm like, yes, that sounds awesome because I know parachutes means going out into the desert and testing things and I'm an experimentalist. And so they literally asked me because they knew I had kind of the personality type that liked to pick up and do anything. And I had a background in aerodynamics and I had done computational fluid dynamics in industry before that for launch vehicles. So for me, it was actually a relatively good fit because nobody has a background in parachutes, right? It's always like a learned thing. And so uh, my role was to be the cognizant engineer um, for the development of the supersonic parachute and so later on that morphed into more focusing on the supersonic qualification which is a lot of what I showed today which was understanding exactly how the parachute was going to behave during the Martian uh, supersonic descent and making sure that it would provide sufficient performance and would survive that descent ahead of time. Because there are people that know about parachutes on Earth and we have things that we know work on Earth but you have these, these, these sort of interesting characteristics on Mars, you have a very very thin atmosphere uh, and because of that thin atmosphere, the craft is going much, uh, much faster than normal as a result. And then odd things happen when you launch the parachute. So that, that supersonic angle was quite, was quite, you know, was, was seen to be the huge distinguishing factor between what you had to do versus what normal people have to do with parachutes, as though normal people are parachutes <laughs> out. Um, so maybe, I mean, how would you approach, I mean, we don't live on Mars. So in that world, I mean, how do you approach designing a parachute system that's going to work on a one-time deal as well? So you know, what, was your, what was your approach to mimicking those, those um, situations, I guess? So fortunately in the field of aerodynamics, um, there's something called non-dimensional parameter scaling. And so you can take um, a lot of parameters which relate things like, for example, your speed relative to the speed of sound, and that's called the Mach number. And so you can have the same Mach number anywhere, whether it's on Venus or Earth, or, or Mars or even in the water versus in the air. And as long as you match that non-dimensional parameter, you can actually say that it's going to perform the same way in this environment versus another environment. There's another really important scaling parameter called the Reynolds number, which defines the amount of turbulence in the flow. And once again, it's a non-dimensional parameter. So if you know what to expect as the Reynolds number in the Mars case, you can actually replicate it in a wind tunnel here on Earth in a subscale environment to ensure that you actually do get the flow field right. So our rationale was that we could not afford 
to do a full-scale test in a supersonic environment on Earth, because that actually requires you going up to 150,000 feet in altitude, attaching a rocket to the back of yourself, to rocket yourself up to Mach 2, and that costs basically a small fortune. So the mission would never have happened if we did that. So instead, what we chose to do was be smart about it and develop computational fluid dynamics simulations coupled with a finite element model solver to uh, show um, sort of theoretically how the parachute would behave and then validate those simulations, making subscale parachutes, which were scaled in the appropriate way in terms of Mach number and Reynolds number, and so that the simulations were correct. So, you, you, I mean, because we, we've learned a lot more about Mars and, and we've learned more about the atmosphere, which helps you understand what the conditions are like. So you took a cut-down model and put it in what, by all accounts, is a very expensive wind tunnel, even a small wind tunnel, yes. and then hoped everything kind of scaled up. And, and now, of course, you went to Mars when you had all this, and you've, you've done the best guess you can about the best, say, guess, it's a hard ring of science here. You've done all the work you can, you think this is the right system. So of course you have a backup system there, of course, when you go to Mars, right? You just, you have like two or three extra parachutes just in case. No, so it's all single string, no redundancy, just because you have, you're very mass constrained. So um, if you were to have redundancy in any of the systems, um, you would never get off the ground, basically, or you would never like basically leave Earth, or there simply isn't the timeline to deploy an alternative system, right? Because you basically have seven minutes to kill, um, dissipating your energy during that seven minutes. So if you have something go wrong, you've lost a portion of that time and you'll lose your altitude and you'll still crash into the ground. So every single system has to work as planned with the performance as planned in order to be able to land safely and softly on the surface of the planet. And the parachute is like a, is a major part of this landing process, but it isn't, it's not like we see, you know, when the Apollo missions touch down, have parachutes and is in the water. The, the parachute didn't lower the craft all the way. The parachute lowered it to a certain point and then a landed, the landed attached. Is that right? Did I get that right? Yeah, it only it only takes it up to around, I, I forget what the average estimation would be, but around eight kilometers. And so the reason for that is that you've basically reached terminal velocity. You can't go any slower. So you have like a, there's a balance between your drag force and your weight. Force. Uh, and because you can't go any slow any further, that's going to be it. That's your terminal speed, 250 miles an hour, and you cannot smack a rover into the surface of the ground at 250 miles an hour. So at that point, it's not doing anything for you, so you just cut it off, and then you actually have to dissipate the remaining energy, and we do that with retro propulsion. So that's where I also worked on that portion of the mission, too, which was assessing what would happen at the landing event um, due to these supersonic, um, basically overly expanded jets pluming into the ground. Yes, yeah, so, so you think, and you think, okay, so we're just going to fire some rockets into the surface of Mars, that's going to dissipate energy slow us down of course then you've got the problem is you're going to kick up a whole load of dust and stuff um, which could potentially damage the rover could cover it in stuff and as well although one of the previous uh, missions kicking all the dust up discovered things like yeah. ice but in this example so you actually the, the the rover hovers down and i'm using my hand which is no good on the podcast <laughs> and i'll put the links to the video and then the rover itself was lowered from that sort of rocket platform and then once that safety touched down, the rocket platform again flew away to avoid damaging it. Yes. It seems that there was about 150 things that could have gone wrong where you had like one shot in this whole mission. <laughs> and yet it, it did, it landed, and it's been a very successful mission since, hasn't it? It has, and, and so the way you deal with that though is that if you actually understood the physics of what was going on, you would understand sort of the things that could go wrong. So we actually do that, we do something called fault trees, look for all the things that could go wrong. Um, you look for the places where if you, what your sensitivity 
sensitivities are to different parameters. And so you have sensitivity to winds, you have sensitivity to density, you have sensitivity to what your drag coefficient is. And you make sure that you actually have um, enough margin in your system so that you capture what all those possible ranges would be so that you would get the end-to-end -end performance that you need, both in terms of like altitude margin, timeline margin, and then load margins. That's the way you cover it. So it's not like if you're, it's a shot in the dark, not at all. It's actually very well quantified. It's only that you can't do worst case on top of worst case on top of worst case, because then you would have an impossible system. So what you do is use a probabilistic approach using a Monte Carlo simulation to find like a three sigma or, or six sigma amalgamation of all of these kind of worst cases, and then choose that as your design point. Which means, yes, there is some risk that if it was a bad day on Mars that it wouldn't work, but that risk is very low, and it's a risk that you've accepted ahead of time. And you've also got good at landing things on Mars. I mean, uh, I think that we were seeing the graphic during the, 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 the keynote that the original landers had a very large area in which the lander could could land and the, the new land I think it was it was it uh, how small was the space you're aiming for 20 kilometers by seven kilometers that's the tiniest landing ellipse that we've ever had and so most of that was enabled by the fact that we used hypersonic guidance so hypersonic guidance was before the parachute is ever deployed you're simply descending um, due you know descending due to gravity towards the surface of Mars you're dissipating energy due to aerodynamic drag with the heat shield but then your craft actually has an angle of attack which gives it a lift factor you have rocket engines on the back of the heat shield, or on the back shell, basically, which allow you to rotate the vehicle, which allows you to modulate the location of the lift vector, which then allows the vehicle to fly, to remove some of those uncertainties to shrink down that landing ellipse. So it's like, it's so sophisticated, and all of that is done autonomously with the flight software, making measurements of what the attitude is of the vehicle and the speed is of the vehicle from an onboard diagnostic. Because you had this whole problem before, of course, which is it takes, what, over eight minutes, 12, eight to 12 minutes to actually communicate back um, to uh, you know to to Earth, you can't be sitting there with a remote control. The computer has to make the adjustments itself, and so unlike previous landers, this lander has a much better ability to think think and reason about where it needs to land, what, what rockets it needs to fire to guide it into the correct location. Um, now, a question, I guess, is why did we do it? I mean, it's very cool, but there was a reason, <laughs> there was a purpose behind the Curiosity rover. So what, what's the sort of mission parameters? What's the, what's the end goal we're looking for here? I would say the end goal for pretty much all the space exploration that we're doing is the search for life uh, and understanding our place in the universe. So when you tie that into Mars exploration, it is the search for potential life in the past, current life, or at least assessing whether or not life could have been supported if you're unable to find it now. And so in the past, we've done that by searching for water because we do believe that all life forms require water to survive. And we do know that there's water on the surface of Mars and there certainly was a lot of water on the surface of Mars back in the day at the formation of the planet. Um, and so this mission does, uh, you know, goes you know, several steps further to understand prior habitability by making measurements of the surface radiation levels because we know the organics get destroyed by radiation to understand how bad is it really, how much worse did it get over time due to the fact that the atmosphere got thinner. And then it also makes direct measurements of organic molecules, or at least the components of what are needed for organic molecules, in terms of looking for methane, in terms of looking for hydrocarbons, and in terms of looking at all the elemental building blocks for organics. And we've actually found all the elemental building blocks for organics. So yeah, we found, we found frozen water. There's, there's, there's methane we've seen, we've seen, and there's some questions about what the source of some of that methane is. Um, and so, you know, that. Uh, and it's still operating, right? I mean, yeah. it's still out there getting samples. I mean, how long do we think it can maintain? Uh, how, how long do we think it's going to keep working for? I mean, is it completely self-sufficient now? Or does it have a life cycle? Is it, are there batteries in this thing that's going to run out at some point? 
So the nice thing about Curiosity is that it uses a nuclear power source. It uses a radioisotope thermoelectric generator or multi-mission RTG is what it's called. And that means that the power source will last for a very long time. So it's likely that the power source will not be the first thing to go out. It's likely that perhaps the computer will fail, the, the wheels will fail, the motor will fail, the heater will fail. That's probably far more likely as to the opposed to the power source going out. Whereas the other rovers have had solar panels and those solar panels get covered by dust over time so therefore the power goes down and if you don't have enough power you can't keep yourself warm and you'll eventually basically die so and that was one of the hypotheses around why Beagle 2 failed was that the, one of the solar panels didn't deploy properly when you didn't get enough power and then it can't keep itself warm and it just is over so yeah. at that point so. uh, but you did have a computer problem the Sol 200 problem which after 200 days the computer stopped taking signals, and so you effectively had to work out some way of getting the computer to properly fail over, because there was a backup computer that didn't kick in. So there are still things that could potentially go wrong, but yes. I mean, how many days now into the mission are we, roughly? So I guess we're, you know, over three years and, uh in two months, I think it's mission now. So, well, so we really, really long time. a thousand days. Yeah. So we yeah. thousand. It's amazing. <laughs> and so, what are your what are your hopes for the for this? For, what are your hopes for what this the rover can continue to achieve? That's there. So now it's finally in its final destination or the place where it wanted to go, which was the foothills of Mount Sharp, and that's where there is evidence of sort of like the past um, sedimentary rock layers. So anywhere that it goes, it's going to discover something new. And so by looking at sort of a, a you know cross-sectional profile of a rock layer, you can actually see how Mars evolved over time. And so that takes a lot of time for the rover to collect that data and then for scientists here on Earth to actually analyze it. So even though if they make a measurement today, that data isn't going to be released probably for you know a couple of months from now, even a year, just because of the time it takes to go through that. So it's kind of impossible to know what's going to happen next, but it is in the location where it's going to discover incredibly amazing new things about sort of the past history on Mars. And, it, and it's not the last NASA mission. There's another mission coming out soon, is there? Is it, yes. So what's, what's happening next? In so 2016, uh, we're launching the InSight mission. So the InSight mission actually is um, using the same entry to set landing sequence as the Phoenix mission. Um, it's going to go and look for Mars quakes. So it's actually got a seismometer on board. And so it's going to look to see whether or not there's still seismic activity on the surface of Mars. And it's going to make heat flow measurements uh, just beneath the subsurface. So that one's coming up, I think, being launched in, in March of this year. and it'll get there probably roughly eight months later. Um, we have Mars 2020, which is the next rover going to Mars. Of course, I'm speaking about NASA missions. I think yeah, ESO sure. also has missions going. But, um, and that one is going to use a very similar entry, descent, and landing sequence as we use for MSL. They might increase the landed mass a little bit more, and it's going to cache a sample, which means it's going to collect a soil sample, rock sample from the surface of Mars, put it inside itself for a future mission, hopefully, to pick up, launch off the surface, and send back to Earth. So that's called the Mars Sample Return Mission, which doesn't exist yet, but this sample, which is being cached by Mars 2020, would be the sample that that mission could take back. So, you, I mean, you have to plan in advance for these things. Yes. Um, and so the, the, the 2016 mission is partly around trying to understand the seismic activity, because there is a, obviously we have Olympus Mons on Mars, which is the tallest mountain, in, known mountain in the solar system. There's a theory this was highly active planet in the past. Is this all about trying to understand the history of Mars and how it's evolved? Definitely, because we don't know what happened. So like, for example, on Earth, we have a very strong magnetic field. Um, on Mars, there's a very weak magnetic field, but it's still there, so there's a remnant of it, which means that at some point, the magnetic field was disrupted. We don't know why. There's several theories as to how it happened. But the problem is, because the magnetic field was disrupted, that's likely the reason why the atmosphere was ripped off. Because when the magnetic field is gone, all the in-space radiation can basically come in and strip off the atmosphere, and that may be um, why that happened. So by understanding sort of the 
the geophysical properties of the planet with the seismometer, with these heat flow measurements, we may get a better confirmation of a theory that, that something happened to disrupt the core of Mars, which then disrupted the magnetic field, which then took away the atmosphere. And, and purely for people that don't really care about space exploration, that sort of information could also help us understand more about our own magnetic field. And because there's some weird things happen to our own magnetic field, the poles reverse every now and then. Yeah. And we're not entirely sure why. And obviously, if we lost our magnetic field, that would be pretty bad. So <laughs> exactly. actually, getting an understanding about what's happening on Mars should actually help us understand our own planet. Because we can, we've got some comparison there, haven't we? And that, you, you hit the nail right on the head. So there's one of the goals for um, planetary science exploration is, is terrestrial planet understanding. And so terrestrial planets are Venus, Earth, and Mars, and they're all completely different from each other now, but at the beginning they were really, really similar. So why is Venus basically 500 degrees centigrade on the surface, 100 atmospheres on the surface, basically hell, um, nothing can live there, um, which means probably all of its oceans boiled and just populated the atmosphere, whereas Mars, the next, you know, next one out from Earth, is dusty, dry, no water, no atmosphere. So it means something did happen, the planets did evolve, you got three points, you can make a line, you can get a trend, you can understand potentially what will happen to Earth, and so it gives us time to make some decisions. <laughs> um, now, uh, I guess this, I'm, I'm going to put a whole lot of information to the videos, the keynote in the notes as well. Um, but if there's anything that uh, if people are interested in what NASA are up to, I mean, how can they, is there, are there ways in which they can get involved and contribute? Are there, are there, are there careers? A JPL that you know that software engineers listening to this should aspire to, or they're just little things you can do around open source projects to get involved. Have you got any sort of guidance or thoughts for people that are really passionate about this stuff and want to help out? Well, there's many, many things you can do. So the first thing is that every single bit of scientific data that we collect goes up on the web. So the scientist who was involved in the instrument gets like sort of first right of publishing, gets to hold on to it for like a couple of months or something like that to do their analysis, but then it goes up on the web. So the finding that Kamal showed with water uh, flowing on Mars, that was actually from a student, right, who analyzed the data and was able to release that finding, and that was her finding. So anybody who's a researcher, student, whether it's undergrad, you know, or grad school, can actually participate in that as part of their research work, right? So that's, there is an obvious one. You can also um, be, you know, summer intern if you're sort of like an undergraduate, you know, computer scientist, engineering type at, um, you know, if, at NASA centers, at ESA, at JAXA, you know, at the Indian Space Agency. Those opportunities certainly exist. You can once you get your degree, you can actually be employed there. Um, then there's also the postdoc program where you can actually do your postdoc at a NASA center, so you're doing your research there. But my experience has been people who are interested in space exploration are so passionate about it that. Those are the people who end up in the field, and I've never met somebody in my life who wasn't passionate about it, who didn't actually get a job in it. Because you're like, you're not there for the money. Uh, you're, you're really there just to satisfy your curiosity. Hence the name of the rover. Fantastic. Thank you so much indeed for your time. Thank you. So that's our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can get more details, links and notes over at magpietalkshow.com. Please do leave a comment over at iTunes. It really does help other people find the show. And thanks to those of you who have done so, so far. If you like what you've heard, please remember to subscribe at iTunes directly or go to magpietalkshow.com. And that way you'll never miss an episode. And until next time, have a great week.